If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1, the very first page of the New Testament. We begin this morning a new series in Matthew's Gospel, and we'll read this morning verses 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, verse 9, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we come now to the preaching of your word. How we long for, how we need to hear from you through preaching. Use this hour now to work faith in us. We pray that as the word is preached, that you would give us what we do not have, that you would teach us what we do not know, that you would make us what we are not yet by your grace. Please work in this hour and bless us and minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We come this morning 
to the opening genealogy of Matthew's gospel. It is a section of Scripture rarely read and seldom preached. And one of the reasons for this is because it's not an easy passage to even read. And I imagine some of you felt some measure of pity for me as I soldiered my way through those names. But of course, the main reason people overlook the opening of Matthew's gospel is because it opens with just a list of names. That's all it is. What could be more unimaginative or prosaic as a way to start a book? I mean, can you think of a more banal and uninteresting way to begin a gospel account containing uh, such things as glorious as the incarnation of the Son of God? You wonder why would Matthew do this? Why does he start in this way? Did he never take a writing class? Or did he never consult perhaps with his uh, colleagues, the other gospel writers. Those are some introductions. If you were to look at the opening to the other gospel accounts, you know how John 1 starts, that famous prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and was not anything made that was made except through Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's, That's an exciting way to start the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. You feel like you're in this dream world almost as we hear John start his gospel, or even Luke. Luke begins the great historian, the great compiler of the early days of the church. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." A very orderly and uh, historian-like way to begin the telling of this new story. Or you could start like Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, which is just sort of, bam, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he quotes from Isaiah's prophecy about the voice that would come crying in the wilderness. But I would suggest to you that Matthew's opening to his gospel is actually the most dramatic of the introductions to the gospel accounts, and certainly, at least, the most rich with biblical meaning and allusion and significance. Well, how could that be? Just a list of names, right? Let me illustrate it for you this way. I'm going to read from the introduction to a biography, and I want you to tell me who this biography is about. Listen as I read. England's new leader, were he to prevail, would have to stand for everything England's decent, civilized establishment had rejected. Their successor would have to be a passionate Manichaean who saw the world as a medieval struggle to the death between the powers of good and the powers of evil, who held that individuals are responsible for their actions and that the German dictator was therefore wicked. A believer in martial glory was required, one who saw splendor in the ancient parades of Victorian legions through Persepolis and could rally the nation to brave the coming German fury. An embodiment of fading Victorian standards was wanted, a tribune for honor, loyalty, duty, and the supreme virtue of action, one who would never compromise with iniquity who could create a sublime mood and thus give men heroic visions of what they were and might become. 
A born demagogue in the original sense of the word. A believer in the supremacy of his race and his national destiny. An artist who knew how to gather the blazing light of history into his prism and then distort it to his ends. An embodiment of inflexible resolution who could impose his will and his imagination on his people. A great tragedian who's, who understood the appeal of martyrdom and could tell his followers the worst, hurling it to them like great hunks of bleeding meat, persuading them that the year of Dunkirk would be one in which it was equally good to live or to die. Such a man, if he existed, would be England's last chance. In London, there was such a man. Who am I reading about? You can say it out loud. Who is it? Winston Churchill. You all knew that, right? Maybe there were two adults in the room who didn't know that, and if you're one of those two adults, I don't know what to say to you. But you knew it was Winston Churchill. I didn't say his name. Now, how did you know it was Winston Churchill? Well, you knew I was speaking of Winston Churchill because you're modern Western people. The events that were only alluded to in that introduction of William Manchester's The Last Lion, Volume 1, those events that were alluded to through a few proper nouns, you know those events. You're in close proximity to that history, and that history means something to you. I want to suggest to you this is something of how Matthew's gospel begins for the Jewish people. Just as in that introduction that I just read, you have sort of this mounting momentum of illusion that sort of picks up pace and steam as I read on. Citing events about the German Fury, of course that's a reference to Adolf Hitler, and of Victorian greatness, and of Dunkirk, the site of that great uh, scene in the opening chapters of World War II. As the, 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 the introduction picked up momentum, eventually it all converges on one individual figure who embodies everything that these events represented. That's how the opening to Matthew's Gospel works. There are all these events and these chapters in the history of the Israelite people that pick up momentum as the genealogy unfolds, and they're full of all kinds of significance and illusion and meaning that may be lost on us if we're not familiar with our Bibles, but to the Jewish readers of Matthew's Gospel, they would have been tracking at every clip, as every name was mentioned, be full of meaning to them. And as the genealogy picks up momentum, it eventually converges on this one, Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Everything that Israel's history anticipated now converges on this one, this Jesus. And Matthew does not expound, in this genealogy at least, the significance of these figures and events because their significance was given. Their significance would have been universally understood by his readers. These were fixtures in the national memory. These were defining chapters in the heritage of a people. They were the most recognizable persons and events in the religious and cultural consciousness of the Israelites. He need only speak the names, and enough is said to bring to his readers all the illusion, all the meaning of these figures mentioned. Now, what we come to understand at the end of the genealogy is that Matthew is dividing Israel's history into three great chapters, three great epics. And he thus focuses their attention on these three great episodes in Israel's history. Look again at verse 17. This is crucial to understanding the structure of the opening of Matthew's gospel. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, you read that and you think, well, that's pretty neat. 
14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Is that really how it happened? And the answer is no. Uh, Matthew is not providing a comprehensive genealogy. So if you, if you really study Old Testament history very carefully, you realize there are some generations that are missing. Matthew's genealogy, and he knows this by the way, Matthew's construction of this genealogy is not comprehensive but thematic. It's selective. He's trying to draw the attention of his readers to three particular events and episodes and epics in Israel's history. They're neatly divided chapters for him in trying to draw the attention of the reader to particular things in the Old Testament that prepare us for the coming of Christ. So what I want us to do is consider these three great events, these three great epics, and then I want us to look a little more closely at the genealogy, some of the details of it, and we'll have four lessons, four applications for us as we consider the genealogy this morning. So these three great events, the first is the covenant with Abraham, the second is the covenant with David, and the third is the exile in Babylon. Consider with me first the covenant with Abraham. The first person Matthew highlights in the genealogy is Abraham himself. That's where he chooses to start the genealogical record. I hope by now, Emmanuel Church, we're all familiar with the story of Abraham. Last year, we had a whole series of sermons in the life of Abraham. Uh, in Genesis 12 through chapter 22, where most of his record is contained, though he's referenced many more times throughout the Old Testament record beyond the Genesis narrative. Uh, we considered even this summer, in a one-off sermon, uh, we considered the Abrahamic covenant, and how the Abrahamic covenant anticipates the coming of Christ. So I'm not going to recast all that material. I'm just going to remind you of some of the highlights. In the story of Abraham, he is called out from Ur of the Chaldeans. He's an idol worshiper. By sheer grace and sovereign election, Abraham is snatched out of idolatry, and he is given a promise. God is going to work his purposes through Abraham. And in the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God enters into with Abraham, there are three central promises. God promises to Abraham that he's going to give to him and to his descendants land. There's land that he is going to inherit. He promises, secondly, that he's going to give to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They're both advanced in age, and Sarah is barren. He's going to give to this old couple seed, offspring. Children will be born to this older couple, this barren couple, and God is going to multiply their descendants as the number of the sands on the seashore, the numbers of the stars in the sky. Land, seed. The last one is blessing. Blessing on Abraham, yes, but more importantly, blessing that will come to all the families of the earth through one particular offspring of Abraham. Through Abraham's line, it will eventually come to a particular son, a particular offspring, a particular descendant, and it is through this son that all the families of the earth, universal blessing, salvation and deliverance to the peoples of the earth, the pontata ethne, the nations, it will come to them also. These are the very first words that God speaks to Abraham. When he at least the first recorded words we have from God to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in the last recorded words of God to Abraham, we have this promise recapitulated. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The apostle Paul in Galatians 3 will quote that very verse and say this is how Abraham had the gospel preached to him beforehand, that there would come a son, and this son would be the means through which blessing and deliverance would come to all the families of the earth. We know, of course, that son of Abraham is Jesus. 
And that is what Matthew wants to direct our minds and attentions to. Now that son, that seed, that descendant, that offspring, through whom God was going to do something, not just for Israel, but for the whole world, he's come in Jesus, born in Bethlehem. This is the story Matthew wants to tell. Now consider, secondly, the second main event that Matthew highlights in this genealogy. He highlights the covenant with Abraham, then traces the line, 14 generations, all the way to David, a thousand years later. The covenant with David, that's point number two. Second main event Matthew highlights, the covenant with David. The promise to David was made a thousand years after the promise to Abraham. It was made a thousand years before the coming and birth of Christ. It focuses on the promise of a descendant from David who would reign on his father's throne forever and whose kingdom would be established throughout the world. The promise is given in a couple of places. Uh, The primary passage we often turn to is 2 Samuel 7. You don't need to turn there. Just listen as I read the promise that God made to David concerning his descendant. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There will come a son, a king, from the line of David. He will reign on his father's throne forever. God will be to him a father. He will be to God a son. And God is going to bring about a universal rule through the kingdom of this coming son of David. And we considered another one-off sermon on the covenant made with David several weeks ago, a couple of months ago. And one of the things I said in that sermon is that this promise made to David at this point in redemptive history, a thousand years on from the promise made to Abraham, this promise begins to shape messianic expectation more than any other promise in the Old Testament. This just sort of becomes the prevailing, it sort of towers above every other promise. And for the Israelite people, on the eve of the coming of her Messiah, they're looking for the king to come. Where is the son of David? Where's the one? The monarchy's been had, it's been destroyed, it's come to nothing, but one day there will come a son from David's line, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and it will indeed be a universal rule. And the prophets later say about how this rule will establish justice and peace and righteousness and shalom throughout the earth, and all the wrongs will be righted, and he will reign from shore to shore. This shapes messianic expectation more than anything else in the Old Testament. The Jews knew there would one day come a king. And as the line continues, things go south very quickly. Promises made to David, yes, Solomon, he does okay. And after that, it gets really bad. The line of kings becomes wicked and broken. And the story of the kings is a discouraging one. It's a tragedy. And yet they knew all the while the line was moving. It was progressing. It was working toward its fulfillment. Though everything looked bleak and discouraging to them, they believed they knew one day the Christ would come, the anointed one, the son of David. All right, now the third major event. You have the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, and then thirdly, the exile in Babylon. The exile in Babylon. You see the prominence phrase is used twice, speaking of the deportation to Babylon. When God's people, his national people, Israel, come under captivity in Babylon, the exile in Babylon. As I mentioned, 
Israel's history after David, the nation falls apart, the kings are wicked, the people are idolatrous, God's law is being openly violated, His sacrifices are profaned, and so in punishment from God, the people are brought into captivity. The temple is destroyed. The land is revoked. There's no king on the throne anymore. This happens about 600 years before Jesus is born, and God's people are left wondering, what happened to the promises? The great promise that was made to Abraham, that there would come a son from his line that would bring universal blessing to the nations of the world. Not only has that not happened, but now the Israelite people are brought into captivity through one of the nations of the world. And they were to believe that one day a son would come through this line that would bring blessing to the nations, even to Babylon. That's not happening. The nations are our captors. We're in exile. And they wondered what happened to the promise made to David. I thought there was going to be a king who would reign on his father's throne. Where is that king? Where is that son? And they wondered, has God cast us off? Is God a liar? Has God forgotten the promises that He made of old to our fathers? Well, you know what happens. God sends the prophets to His people. And the prophets do speak many judgments over the people, but they also remind them of the promises that have been made of old. God will keep His word. Wait for it. It's going to come. It will not delay. God is going to do what He has sworn. He will accomplish what He has said. The line is unbroken. One day it will reach its fulfillment. The son of Abraham, the son of David would come. And then, of course, you get to that white blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's in most copies of the Bible. If you turn to the middle of your Bible, there's that white blank page between the Testaments. It's one of the pages in Scripture most pregnant with meaning. After Malachi, there were 400 years of silence, nothing from God. You could imagine being a Jew in that period. You see that white blank page, it represents to us names we'll never know, stories and histories we'll never know, but it was a people waiting, waiting, and some doubting, wondering, is God going to fulfill His Word? How will He fulfill His Word? 400 years, they have nothing, nothing from God. Of course, they have the Old Testament Scriptures, but no new word is being given, no prophets are sent. What happened to the promise? Okay, now let's put it all together. What is the overall picture Matthew wants to present here? 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 between David and the deportation to Babylon, 14 between Babylon and the birth of Jesus. These are the first ideas he wants to put in the minds of his readers. First of all, Jesus comes as the son of Abraham. All those promises that God made to and through Abraham, Matthew wants to say, now in Jesus, they're going to be fulfilled. Uh, The son of David promise made to him. Now in Jesus, all the promises made to and through David, they're about to be fulfilled. And he wants to put into their minds the memory of those centuries in captivity in Babylon, those very dark years in Israel's history when the hope was dim, when their outlook was bleak, when the promise seemed shrouded in darkness, and all the people had was a hope in ancient things that were said to them. He's reminding them, do you remember that period of darkness? God was working all the while. When things looked so miserable, when it appeared that God was silent and perhaps that He had abandoned His people, all the while He's telling them, He's reading to them the generations, the line was working. The line was moving. God was bringing His promise to fruition. You who have waited in exile, now Emmanuel comes to you. 
Now Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, he has arrived. Well, now in the time that remains, I simply want to present four lessons we can learn from this genealogy, four lessons for our faith as we consider what's revealed here. And these points build on one another, okay? Number one, God works with and through actual people, not ideal people. God works with and through actual people, not ideal people. What am I saying? This requires us to look a little more closely at some of those names that are hard to pronounce in the genealogy itself. If you know some of the figures I mentioned, other than Abraham and David, but even Abraham and David, you can quickly discern this family line, this family tree is a mess. I mean, this is not a pristine, cleaned up, neat and tidy family. If you examine and explore all the various histories of all these various people, what will stand out to you is not the nobility of Jesus' line, but it's depravity. You can start with the guys at the top if you like. Let's talk about Abraham. Yes, Abraham was that man of faith. True enough. He also pimped out his wife on two occasions that we know of. He, he engages in a kind of duplicity with Sarah, his wife, and impregnates her servant girl. And then when he decides he doesn't like how the arrangement has gone, he banishes her into the wilderness and thereby abandons both his mistress and his bastard child. That's Abraham, and that's Jesus' most illustrious relative. How about David? David was the man after God's own heart. He should be honored and revered as such. He's in the hall of faith along with Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, but you know David's story. What's one of those events that is uh, most emphasized in his narrative? Well, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he commits conspiracy to murder, to cover up his sin, and his sin is exposed, and God judges him accordingly. And David is the one from whom this great son will come. He's Jesus' great-grandfather, this great man. It is precisely, in fact, through that adultery with Bathsheba that Jesus comes. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? You have Isaac, lousy and feckless father, inept dad. You could think of Jacob, a scoundrel, a supplanter, a deceiver. How about the women in this genealogy? Did you notice the women that are in the genealogy? Forty-two men, four women are mentioned, and all of the commentators make a big deal about the women. And they do this for a few reasons. First of all, they do it because women would not have featured prominently in genealogies in the ancient Near East world. Typically, the line was reckoned through the male heir. You would follow the male line. And so it's odd, kind of an alien intrusion, to have women mentioned in the genealogy, at least in those days. There's a second thing the commentators will point out, and that's the sort of in-your-face, jarring kind of way that these women are introduced. Did you notice that as we read verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Well, everyone I know of that's been born, I don't know about you, has been born by some woman. That's not news. But in these four cases... Matthew wants to force us to reckon with these four particular women. It was by these women 
that Jesus was born. And that leads to the most significant thing that the commentators will highlight, and that is the character of these women, who they were and what they represented. Do you know these four women? Do you know Tamar? You could read about her in Genesis 38. I can't even tell Tamar's story in mixed company without blushing. Even what I can tell you is bad enough. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and she lays with her father-in-law and thereby conceives twins. That is the very event that gets her included in this genealogy. Nothing else about Tamar's life warranted her inclusion in Jesus' family. It was in that very event that she becomes part of the story. How about Rahab? You have Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Boaz, the father of… who is it now? Oh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. He could have just said, Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Boaz, the father of Obed. He doesn't do that. He wants to force you to reckon with the fact that Rahab is in Jesus' family tree. And who is Rahab? If you know her story in Joshua, she's most often referred to not by just Rahab. She's referred to as Rahab the prostitute. She was so caught up in that work. It was her profession. It was part of her very identity. The appellation given to Rahab is Rahab the prostitute. That's who she was to history. What about Ruth? Ruth is the next woman mentioned, verse 5, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Well, Ruth is in some ways a noble individual. There is a book of the Bible named after Ruth. But why is it so important for Matthew to highlight to his readers? You know, Ruth is part of the story. Jesus comes by Ruth. Why is that important? Well, Ruth was a Moabite woman. Do you know who the Moabites are? Uh, that people gets their start from Lot's incestuous relationships with his daughters. That's where the Moabites come from. From then on, you have the Moabite people. And do you know what Deuteronomy says about the Moabites? Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You see the point that Matthew's making. He wants to force his audience, chiefly Jews, to face the fact that Jesus was descended from a Gentile. His family line is a mixed family line. Anyone here born from a mixed family? Jesus comes from a mixed family. How about Bathsheba, the fourth woman mentioned? She, of course, is named without being named. Uh, this is perhaps the most in-your-face reference in the genealogy to the depravity of Jesus' family. Verse 6, second half of verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In other words, remember Matthew could have just said, and David had Solomon and Solomon had, and just go down the line. He wants you to think about this. He wants you to think about this. That it was through David's adultery with Bathsheba that the promise was furthered and that the line was brought to fruition. And it's interesting the way he words it, because of course, when David and Bathsheba conceived their first child together, she's still married to Uriah. And perhaps David never had any plans to marry her, but now she's pregnant, and he's got to cover it up. And so he arranges for the murder of Uriah. But then he marries her, and then they conceive Solomon. And even still, Matthew writes, remember, David had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He still regards her that way. He wants to remind you of David's sin in this and how through adultery it is that God chose to bring the promise to fruition. This is Jesus' family. 
And what's the point? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, they're all sinners. They're all sinners. Broken lives. Much wickedness in their lives. God chose to advance His purposes by working with and through actual people, not ideal people. People with baggage, with real sins, with black marks in their past that make them ashamed. This is how God appointed it to be. This is how God designed it, which is good news for you and me because we are not ideal people. Some of you still have this mixed up in your heads. You think that God works through good people and He rejects the bad people. It's not that way. God works with and through actual sinful people. And He makes them part of His family. And He uses them to accomplish His purposes. And you'll notice, for many in this family line, it's not as though He just used them at their best. Well, okay, yeah, they have sins in their lives and they have things that make them ashamed. Uh, I'll just not look at that and what I'll use is the very best things about them. I'll use them in their most triumphant moments. That's not what He does. For many of them, it's precisely at their worst that the Lord uses them. It's them at their very worst that gets them included in the family line. Lesson number two. God works with and through actual people, not ideal people. Lesson number two. God uses human frailty, weakness, and sin to accomplish His purposes. God uses human frailty, weakness, and sin to accomplish His purposes. As I said, this isn't clean and tidy and neat, and there's no way you can make it that way. I always find it funny uh, when talking to folks, I like to learn about where they come from and who their families are and their background and things like that. And so often people say to me, well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of dysfunction in my family. Well, yeah, join the back of the line. I, I mean, everyone's family is dysfunctional. There's all kind of pain, heartache, and difficulty in every family represented here, I'm sure. I was just at the beach with my family. We managed to get six of the siblings together, and mom was there, and grandma was there. And it was a special time, wonderful. And we do what families do when they go to the beach. You sort of rally the troops together. You dress in slightly nicer clothes. You go out to the beach for family pictures, right? Anybody do that? I know some of you do that. I've seen the pictures on your walls in your living rooms. You go to the beach and you take family pictures. And, and my wife posted those pictures. She's the resident family photographer. She posted those pictures to Facebook and Instagram. And you all left lovely comments about this pretty little family and everyone smiling and clean. I'm not saying anything that's exceptional, okay? If I put that picture of all the siblings and the spouses and the children and mom and grandmother, and they're all smiling, they all look great, and I went down the line, I could tell you about baggage and sin and heartache in the lives of each one of those people. Maybe not so much the kids, though they're sinners too, but, but the adults there, I could tell you about very dysfunctional and wicked things in all of their lives, mine most of all. All of our lives are that way. Jesus' family is no different. If you saw the family all gathered together, all the names mentioned in this genealogy, what would overwhelm us is the dysfunction and the sin and all that went wrong and all that was broken about Jesus' family. It was in these very events that God was working to bring about His purposes, events that represented the height of human misery and sin Events in the Old Testament that are the foremost illustrations of human depravity, 
They were the very instruments God used to bring about the birth of His Son as the Savior of the world. Now, that's an outstanding statement to make. But here's a point that's even more astounding. This is exactly how God designed it. You see, could not the Lord have designed to bring the birth of His Son, the Lord Jesus, through a pristine family line? A a, a family that was marked by its elite pedigree. At least a family a little more tidy than this. He deliberately does not do that. God appointed it this way. He deliberately used incest and prostitution and adultery and deception and murder and unclean Gentiles and the like to sire forth His Son who would be the Savior of the very wretches and scoundrels by whom He was born. Now that's something. That's something. You just think of any one of the sinful instances that we have here in this account marking the history of these people. You may think of David and Bathsheba. God used that very event to further the line. It was the very thing He used to bring the promise to life. The line passed through wicked men and wicked women, and God was determined to use these things to bring the promise to life. And like I said, you'll notice it's not as though God chose all their best moments to be the things that they're known for and what got them into the family tree. In many cases, He uses their worst moments. What's the material point that I want to make? I think in this genealogy, the opening of Matthew's gospel, we have here an illustration of a biblical principle. This way of working in Jesus' line is normal for God, not exceptional. My friend, God uses, it is part of His mysterious purpose and will, God uses evil events, traumatic experiences. You have traumatic experiences in your background. God purposes to use evil events and traumatic experiences, wicked things, to further His purposes in our lives and in the world, and we see it illustrated here in Jesus' family tree. Look at Tamar. Who would have thought God could redeem an act? Look at old righteous Lot. It's called righteous Lot in 2 Peter. Wife is turned into a pillar of salt. He's hiding out in a cave. He's drugged up and raped by his daughters. From his line comes unclean Gentiles, the Moabites cast off from God's people. Could God bring any good from incest and rape and uncleanness? You bet He can. You bet He can. Don't let anyone in this room say, God can't use my pain to bring about any good. That's not true. God brought good out of immense evil. He brought the salvation of the human race. Of the worst possible things He can imagine. And I'll just say, by way of an aside, in the whole abortion debate, so many people want to clamor for an exception in the cases of incest and rape. But I tell you this, whatever you think about that issue, if abortion were prosecuted in every case of incest and rape, the Lord Jesus would never be born. You think about that the next time someone suggests that God can't bring good out of impossible evil. He can. And I know some of you, we have the Walk for Life coming up here, and many of you are engaged in helping crisis pregnancy centers. You can tell that to those women. You can say, whatever's happened to you, I've got a story to tell you. Let me tell you about our Savior. Do you know where he came from? Do you know what events are in his background? His family line? You think your family's messed up and broken? You don't know the half of it. Let me take you to Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. This is God's normal way of working, not His exceptional or occasional way of working. 
My friend, the deepest pain you are experiencing right now, God can use it for your good. He can use it to advance His purposes. You look at Jesus' family tree, all the brokenness, all the sin, and yet each event and each personal narrative in history was necessary to further the promise along. And without these events, there would be no gospel. There would be no salvation. And it's crucial to note, by the way, for many of these people, most of them actually, they had no clue, had no clue, no notion, the outcome that God was bringing about through their pain. And let me ask you if they could know that this was what God was going to do, if they could have had somehow Matthew 1 verses 1 through 17, do you think it would change their perspective on their trials and their sins and their sorrows? Of course it would. Of course it would. Would it change your perspective to know that God uses some of the most horrific events in your life and some of the sins that you're most ashamed of, that he uses it to advance his purposes in the world? I mentioned we were at the beach. Another thing that families do when they go to the beach is everybody chips in to do a thousand-piece puzzle. Does your family do that when you go to the beach? You lay it out there on the table, you do the thousand-piece puzzle, and everybody scurries the last two hours of the trip because you kind of slacked off and you have to finish it up, right? And everybody is there frantically trying to finish the puzzle. I want you to imagine a thousand-piece puzzle. I don't give you the puzzle. I don't give you the cover image on it. You know, the really good thousand-piece puzzles are very hard to put together. They're usually like a dark, deep blue ocean under a night sky. (laughs) It's hard to do. If I gave you one piece, one piece, that's all I give you, you don't know the cover. You don't know the big mural that we're supposed to make here. I just give you a piece. You look at that, you hold that up. Now, what is that? It's in dark blue, a little bit of charcoal. (laughs) What is that? What is that? You'd be perplexed, right? If I said, now, do you, know, do you know what this is? And can you put the picture together? You wouldn't be able to do that. You'd have to have all the other pieces, right? It's like that in our lives. Events occur. Things happen. We fall into a certain sin. Some tragedy befalls our family. Some event takes place. And all you have is a puzzle piece. And you think, what is that? Why, why would God bring this? Why is that in my story? What, what possible place does that have? And it's not God's purpose to give you all the other puzzle pieces, but what do you need, right, to put it together? All the puzzle pieces have to come together, and what you have is this beautiful picture, right? Well, I'm not even talking about you just getting all the other puzzle pieces from your life and putting them together. You'd have to get all the other puzzle pieces from everyone else's life. And this genealogy, all these individual puzzle pieces that were making up God's redemptive purpose. My friend, your pain is like that puzzle piece. But oh, if you could see how the Lord is using it. And when he brings all the pieces together from all these disparate places and all these disparate lives and events, what he's making, what he's doing, his eternal design and his purposes for us and indeed for the whole world. Lesson number three, I'll move more quickly. God works with and through actual people, not ideal people. God uses human frailty, weakness, and sin to accomplish his purposes. Number three, Christ's biological family contained moral outcasts, and so does his spiritual family. Christ's biological family contained moral outcasts, and so does his spiritual family. You read this genealogy before us, and you think, what a sorry, sick, messed up family tree. 
is so much wickedness, so much sin accumulating generation after generation. But then you look a little harder and you see where this genealogy goes. And you think, what grace is here? What a spectacular triumph of grace this family tree is. Look at what God brought out of such losers, such sinners, such outcasts and misfits. Look what the Lord brought out of so much pain, so many rotten apples on the family tree. Such a complex web of sinful lies making up this mosaic of sinners. And yet God so worked to keep it all together, to bring it all about, and to bring it all to fruition, to bring about the birth of the Savior of the line of Abraham and the line of David. What a triumph of grace. And who could have made this up, put it all together? Who could have written the story? Who could have kept up with all the providential twists and turns along the way? But then a further thought suggests itself. If Jesus had such individuals as his forebears, might he have such individuals as his followers? I suggest part of the reason why Matthew starts his gospel this way is to introduce us to a Savior who associates with the lowly and the broken and who will be the friend of sinners. He wants to get you comfortable with the idea that Jesus associates himself with sinners. Matthew is about to introduce us to the one who did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew wants to introduce us to the one who works through events we would never design and people we would never choose on our own. So will we be surprised when Jesus calls the author of this gospel, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, the tax collector. Is he who you would have drafted to your team, fantasy football season? Would you draft Matthew to be part of your core group? Or how about the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15? He says, Lord, help me. Lord, Lord, please help me. I got nothing. Help me. Even the little dogs can eat the crumbs from their master's table. Is he who you would have chosen to associate with? But friends, Christ includes in his family and among his followers those who we would tend to exclude. He chooses those we would be inclined to reject. Christ works through those who we would as soon leave out. Christ knows among his family and among his followers all kinds of moral outcasts, not just like them, but like us. Jesus is not ashamed to have such sinners among his forebears, and he's not ashamed to have such sinners among his followers. And that's really good news because, you see, we are a room full of people just like Jesus' forebears and just like Jesus' followers who we will meet throughout this gospel. This genealogy should give each of us hope that Jesus won't be ashamed to claim you as his, that you can approach him, that you can come to him, He's pleased to include such people among his family and among his followers. He will receive the broken. He will receive those who are heavy laden. He will receive those sick with sin. Come, come to me. I can make it all right. I can forgive your sins. I can save you. I can show you how to walk. Jesus associates with the lowly, with the sinful, and with the broken. And there is a lesson here. Just to, it's not the main point, but there's a lesson here on the side for the church. The church here is a community of the broken. 
The Lord's family is a family full of redeemed sinners. Everyone in this room has sinful baggage. I'll say that again. Everyone in this room has sinful baggage. If we all stood before the all-seeing eye of Christ and had the litany of our life read out to us before public view, how many of us could stand? We need to talk this way as the church. We are all in this sinful mess together. We're like Jesus' family. We're like Jesus' followers. We're a community of broken people. And some of us need to learn, maybe some of us who appear the most externally clean, we need to learn how to talk about the triumphs of grace in our lives over our sin. The ways in which God has used our baggage and our shame and the ways in which God has overcome those events and those things that seem so wicked and so evil. He's used them, He's worked through them, and He's forgiven us of those things. Fourthly and finally, and we'll end here before coming to the table. God works with and through actual people, not ideal people. God uses human frailty, weakness, and sin to accomplish His purposes. Christ's biological family contained moral outcasts, and so does His spiritual family. Now, this is a big one, number four. God does not operate on our timetable. God does not operate on our timetable. It took 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. It took 1,000 years from David to Jesus. It took 600 years from the deportation to Babylon to Jesus. 400 years of total silence. You think about those Jews living in exile and how they must have struggled and wrestled. They thought the promise would come sooner. They thought it would come in different ways, in more glorious ways. And they're wondering, what happened? What happened to the promise? And some in their darkest moments, maybe they'd admit it to you. I wondered, is God a liar? Has He deceived me? Or maybe, maybe the promises are true, but we've just been dropped from the program. They can't be true for me. Can't be true for us. God will come up with some other nation, and that's how He'll bring the promise to fruition. They doubted these things. They struggled with these things. And they lived in that white blank page, struggling, doubting, waiting, waiting. How's God going to do this? I can't see a way. Too much sin, too much baggage. Too much idolatry, too much betrayal, too much profanity, too much blasphemy. How's he going to bring this about? They're waiting, and they're looking. And you think of all those people who had to go back to the promises and pray to God, Lord, give me faith, help my unbelief. I know you're good, I know you're right, I know you'll do what you have sworn you have told us, that you will not lie to David, you will not lie to Abraham, but I, I just, I'm not seeing it, help me. And they lived on, and they lived on, and then the day came where the page was turned over to Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God doesn't work on our timetable. Some of us here, in a very real sense, are living on that white page. It's not the white page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the white page between the already and the not yet. We've been given promises. We've been given promises. Better promises. Glorious promises. We have the risen Christ. 
We have the published gospel. We have the New Testament. We've been given grand promises, but we haven't seen the fulfillment of all those promises. I don't know about you. I'm still struggling with remaining sin. And I don't have my resurrected body yet. And this corruption hasn't put on incorruption. And the people I love keep dying. And they're still in their graves. And we still have cancer, miscarriages, and Alzheimer's, and mental illness, and a thousand other evils that I can mention. When's God going to fulfill His Word? When's He going to save me to the uttermost? When will I be rid of my sin? When will He make all things new? Deliver us from this present evil age. Didn't He say He was going to do that? We're living on that white blank page as we wait. Friends, one day we'll turn the page over. We'll turn it over to the passage we read corporately in Revelation. This new city, paradise of God, coming out of heaven. Every tear will be wiped away and sin and sorrow and death and Satan will be no more. We'll have everything that we hoped for and expected all this time. No expectations will be unmet. No dreams will be unfulfilled in heaven. No one will ever be disillusioned again. We will be in glory forever with the Lamb. Take comfort, friends. If Matthew 1 is true and if God brought the promise to life in his time, and he always does it in his time, it'll take longer than you think it will. It won't happen in the way you think it's going to happen. But if God sent forth his Son through this, of the line of Abraham, of the line of David, he'll keep his words to us. Written over this genealogy, whenever we read it, we just think God keeps his word. He kept his promises to them. He'll keep his promises to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we find it so hard often to wait. We believe your word. We bless you for the promises of full and final salvation. We bless you for the promises of eternal life forever with the Lamb. How we long for that day. And Lord, we, we honestly acknowledge before you, we still struggle with our remaining sin. We struggle with unbelief. We struggle with doubt and discouragement and fear. Help us to keep an eagle eye on your promises and give to us faith to believe them, to hold fast to them, to know that you are a God who fulfills your word, a God who will bring good out of all this evil and all this sorrow, that you are working to bring about your plans and purposes in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for how you worked throughout the centuries and throughout the epochs of time to bring forth your Son, born of a virgin, from the line of Abraham, the line of David, the great fulfillment of the promise. Lord, give us faith in him, love for him, help us to follow him. Lord, you have given us grand and glorious promises now in this age. We await their fulfillment, the full forgiveness of our sins, final justification, glorification with you. Please, Lord, help us in this season of waiting for the return of our Savior, the second coming of Christ. Make us to be faithful in these days. 
and help us to be full of faith to trust your word. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.